Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons history podcast. You're listening to episode two, Bart, the storming of the Stasi headquarters. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss a Simpsons episode and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Differentiate what we differentiate. Spell Wiener how we spell Wiener. And this time I'm going to be looking at Season 1, Episode 2, Bart the Genius, uh, which was aired on January the 14th, 1990. And Tom? And I'm going to be looking at the storming of the Stasi headquarters towards the end of the peaceful revolution in Berlin, back when the government of the German Democratic Republic was falling apart. Excellent. Hence the fantastic title of this episode of the podcast. And if you want to get in touch with the show, you can email us, podcast at retrospecticus.org, or get in touch with us through Twitter. We are at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore. And coming up on the show, we've got a very, very special guest. So stay tuned. In case people haven't worked out how we name the show, we start off with a part of a Simpsons episode and then add the historical event. So last week it was episode one, Simpsons Roasting on Romanian Revolution, which kind of worked. But this week it's Bart the Storming of the Stasi Headquarters, which <laughs> doesn't work at all. But anyway. A long may it only slightly work. <laughs> okay, so uh, without further ado... Let's get into it. So, Bart the Genius, which was Season 1, Episode 2. And as far as we can tell, for its production number 7G02, was always meant to be the second episode. It's just that the first episode wasn't meant to be the first episode. But we covered that last time, and if you haven't heard it, you should probably hear it. And after that cheap plug, I'll go straight on to say that the UK number one at the time was New Kids on the Block with Hanging Tough. So uh, if uh, anybody doesn't remember New Kids on the Block, they were an American boy band who at this stage were attempting to carve out a more urban, gritty image for themselves, fooling absolutely nobody in the process. Yeah. They would later uh, acronymize, which is definitely a word, uh, to NKOTB, uh, to much the same effect. Uh, the US viewership for this was 24.5 million viewers. It was 47th in the ratings for the week. Uh, and this is the first one, as we discussed before, uh, Simpsons Roasting on Open Fire as a Christmas special does not have an opening title sequence. This was the first episode of The Simpsons Swear with the iconic title sequence. So, what was the chalkboard gag? The chalkboard gag was, I will not waste chalk. <laughs> Solid. Already quite meta, like that a lot. Um, and the couch gag, Bart is popped into the air by the family's mass and drops down in front of the television as the producer credits play. A classic, I think we can all agree. Absolutely. Uh, they, they wouldn't really get properly good until season three or four. <laughs> but, you know, at least, at least it's starting. So, what happens in Bart the Genius? Well, Bart's frustration and troublemaking put an end to family Scrabble night as he invents the word quidjibo and gives it the definition of a big, dumb, balding North American ape with no chin and a short temper. Homer takes offence and gives chase. At school the next day, after a horrendous ordeal with an intelligence test, he decides to cheat and put his name on swatty student Martin Prince's test paper. This causes the school to pronounce that Bart is gifted, and Marge and Homer immediately enrol him in a more appropriate school. 
Lisa sees through the lie, as does Principal Skinner, but the latter is just glad that Bart is no longer his problem. At the Enriched Learning Centre for Gifted Children, Bart is even more out of his depth than usual and is unable to form friendships with his unimpressed, precocious classmates, with the exception of the control hamster. Worse still, his old friends have also cast him out for his perceived intelligence, but the one bright side is that his relationship with Homer has improved massively. Bart finally blows his cover, pun intended, when an experiment goes badly wrong and explosively fills the school with green goo. We will return to this later. We will. Uh, briefly considering extending his lie yet further by proposing a study of regular kids that would see his return to Springfield Elementary as an undercover researcher, he cashes out and confesses his cheating. While scrubbing the goo out later, Bart is forced to admit to Homer that he cheated on the test, but expresses his joy that he and his father are now enjoying each other's company. Homer takes offence and gives chase. The episode was written by John Vitti, who is a, uh, a great name in the Simpsons writing canon. He would go on to pen classics such as Mr. Plow and Cape Fear. Relatively active from 1990 to 1995, he then returned for several episodes in 2002 and 2004. And he also wrote for King of the Hill, The Office US version, The Larry Sanders Show, films such as Ice Age and Robots, and don't call it a Simpsons spin-off, The Critic. Oh, that. Oh, oh, <laughs> oh that. That just, that just about hits my radar, The Critic. <laughs> Uh, he also used the pseudonym Penny Wise on two Simpsons clip shows as he didn't want to be credited for them. There are some uh, notable character debuts in this one. So one of the characters debuting this time is Edna Crandall. Don't you mean Edna Krabappel? Wait a minute, Bart's teacher is named Krabappel? I've been calling her Crandall! <laughs> Why didn't someone tell me? Oh, I've been making an idiot out of myself. Sorry, couldn't resist it. <laughs> Yes, Edna Krabappel, one of the iconic characters of The Simpsons, uh, voiced by Marsha Wallace. She was an uh, actress, voice artist, comedian, and game show panelist, uh, perhaps best known for her roles as receptionist Carol Kester on the 1970s sitcom The Bob Newhart Show, and as Edna Krabappel. In 92, she received a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding VoiceOver Performance for the episode Bart the Lover, Season 3, Episode 16. That was great. Uh, she was in a lot of other stuff, uh, Magnum P.I. Also, That's My Bush, which was Trey Parker and Matt Stone's short-lived satirical sitcom based on uh, George W. Bush's time in the White House. Uh, she also voiced the librarian in Monsters University. Okay, good bit of trivia. And she's dead. There's no, no uh, kind of, no software of putting this. Wallace died on the 25th of October 2013 from pneumonia and sepsis. The episode Four Regrettings at a Funeral, which was broadcast on the 3rd of November 2013, was dedicated to her memory, but because she'd already recorded lines for future episodes, she was last heard posthumously ten episodes later in episode 543, and we're on episode two, so right. we better start catching up, uh, season 25, episode 13, which also aired with a short bumper where Ned Flanders says how much he misses Edna, who is Implied to have died off-screen. Yes. Ned Flanders and Edna. Nedna, as they were known for that summer. Spoilers, probably. Another character that was introduced was Martin Prince. Now, his characterisation would change a little bit throughout the series, but here he's introduced as the polar opposite of Bart, in the way that Lisa, despite usually having an adversarial stance, simply isn't. Lisa is at least a Simpson. 
Uh, whereas Martin is everything that Bart is, and he, he embraces and enforces the rules. He squeals to Principal Skinner when Bart vandalizes the school. He's enthusiastic about and actually good at his schoolwork. And he's respected and appreciated by the teachers where Bart... Well, Bart is Bart, really. <laughs> and, of course, we all know who else was introduced in this episode. Oh, do we? Uh, Richard. Oh, Richard, yes. One of one of Bart's little friends. Yes. 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 Uh, see, I mean, I'm... I had to look this one up as well. He's the kid with the leather jacket who's briefly in Bart's friend group in the early days, uh, which consisted of those two, plus Lewis Wendell and Millhouse, though later episodes would somewhat callously reduce Bart to just the one friend, and even more callously, that friend would be Millhouse. Krabopel mm -hmm. and Martin, they act as a sort of a pincer of antagonism for Bart. I feel like we're very much putting his shoes in this episode, uh, particularly when he struggles with the number puzzle. I don't know if you remember that sequence, but it was very, very nicely animated and very sort of stark compared to the rest of the, the episode. Yes, yes, because it's a sort of nightmare sequence. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yes, with the train filling up with numbers. And it really gets his, uh, his difficulty in comprehending it across. Uh, uh, and it leads to this exchange, which is particularly telling, I think, with uh, uh, Krabopel saying, Bart, there are students in this class with a chance to do well. Will you stop bothering them? Uh, <laughs> suggesting that the system has already given up on Bart, quite frankly. And Martin, of course, finishes with, uh, he's not bothering me, Mrs. Krabopel. I'm finished. May I go outside and read under a tree? Uh, which is perhaps the most sickening rejoinder uh, possible yeah. at that stage. Um, I've said before, uh, which is odd because we've only had two episodes before this, but I've already said before that I have trouble relating to Bart. Uh, but I think this is a very humanising sequence for him. We see him completely out of his depth, struggling to add anything of value to his situation. And his lack of concentration does also predict his eventual diagnosis with attention deficit disorder, which is later treated with the drug Focusin in the season 11 episode Brother's Little Helper. But you don't have to watch that one. No, no. That was when they got all preachy, wasn't it? It was, When yes. they tried to deal with issues. There's... Also, a second sequence in two episodes that lampoons the usual resolution of television sitcoms. When Bart tells Homer he's glad the experience has bonded them, that's usually a cue for parental forgiveness and happy ever after, uh, but Homer chases after him, trying to choke him. And also, I, I think this is probably time, we, we did say we'd revisit this, but there's, there's an explosion caused by acids and bases, which I believe you, you have some beef with. There is, there is. I mean... We'll get to talking about the maths in a little bit, but I'm from a biochemical background, and when the teacher says, you do know what happens when you add acids to bases, don't you? Bart drops a drop of something into something else, and then there's a big explosion, everything's covered in green goo. That has always annoyed me, because... <laughs> Because adding an acid to a base, if you remember your GCSE chemistry, gives you a salt and water. Now, it, now they can be very exothermic, those reactions, sometimes violently so. But it's such a generic thing to say. It'd be like in a physics lesson saying, you know what happens when you drop an object on another object, don't you? Now, if, now if one object's a feather and the other one's a pillowcase, then fine. If, if one object's an anvil and the other one's a tube of toothpaste, carnage. <laughs> So, it, yeah, so just, just being from a chemical background, that always really annoyed me. Just to cement my position as the stupid one on the podcast, I, I'm going to say, I love the bit just post-explosion where the two hamsters run away. That always makes me chuckle. <laughs> uh, 
Hamster, hamster number one, of course, uh, was infected with a staphylococci virus, and hamster number two was the control hamster. I feel a bit like hamster number two on the podcast. I did, so, so, sorry, I, I, I've, I haven't been paying pay attention to the vaccine. Did they really say staphylococci virus? Yeah, yeah. Staphylococcus is a bacteria. Yeah, the, the whole scene is, hi Bart, cool hamsters, what are their names? Hamster number one has been infected with a staphylococci virus, and hamster number two is the control hamster. So it's actually been infected with something that doesn't exist. No, there's no such thing as a staphylococci virus. <laughs> wow. And if, uh, if there is such a thing as a staphylococci virus, please tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Yeah. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be very happy to take your advice on it because I don't think either of us could really argue against that. <laughs> it, uh, it, you're quite right. It does not seem to be a thing that exists. Okay. Uh, I was actually going to say just one more thing about the hamsters. Um, so uh, just just the, and hamster number two, who is of course the control hamster. Yeah. I haven't checked, but I'm guessing both of these probably have huge character arcs in the Simpsons comics. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with a control hamster. <laughs> a control hamster virus is fine. A staphylococci virus is not. So you're up for some uh, did you knows? Oh, go on then. Okay, so there is a miscoloured banana in the opening scenes. Right. According to the DVD commentary track, this is due to the Korean animators apparently being unfamiliar with bananas in general. They didn't have bananas in South Korea in the 90s. Well, I mean, you know, that's, that's not for me to say, is it? That, that's the reported, uh, they reported w- version. They wouldn't have had bananas in East Germany in the 80s. Ah, nice plug, nice plug. Yep, yep. uh, speaking of things banana-related... <laughs> okay... Uh, chimpanzee researcher Jane Goodall is mentioned in the episode. According once again to the DVD commentary track, she sent the show a letter and an autographed copy of one of her books in response. The staff had obviously seen quite some turnover by the time of season 12's Simpson Safari, which features a Goodall-esque researcher training chimpanzees to mine diamonds for her personal gain. Goodall's yes. reaction to this slight is not recorded. <laughs> and now, what you all came here to listen to Hardcore Scrabble geekery. <laughs> yes, I'm a fully paid-up Scrabble nerd on top of all my other obsessions and character failings, so I'm here to take issue with Bart's obvious scoring error. Okay. In the English version of Scrabble, and it's worth noting that there is only one, there isn't a separate American-English version, although in researching this I did find out there's an Anglo-Saxon version, so there we go. Quidjabo grants you 5 points for K, 4 points for W, 4 points for Y, Eight for J, one for I, three for B, and one for O, which equals 26 points, not 22, as Bart erroneously claims. Oh. Boy, I really hope someone got fired for that blunder. Oh, John Vitti, hang your head in shame. So the full score is your 26 points, plus 50 points for using all your letters. On a triple world word score, uh, I make that 228 points in total. Quidjibo was also used as a non-diplom of one David L. Smith, creator of the Melissa computer macrovirus, which caused an estimated $80 million worth of damage. And we'll be hearing about a computer virus of renown on a later episode, so stay tuned. We will. Another throw forward. I like it. Let's talk about maths. Ah. As part of my research for this episode, I set myself the task of working out the maths from Bart's lunch conundrums. Uh, and I completely failed, basically. Right. Uh, I just, just, uh, I didn't know where to start. And I certainly didn't know where to finish. Okay. Um, and because of this, we've had to get a special guest in. And joining us this evening, we have a very special guest. 
Not only is he the chairman of the Good Thinking Society, he is the author of many a popular science book, including Big Bang, The Code Book, Fermat's Last Theorem, and of course, The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. Please welcome to the show, Simon Singh. Good evening. <laughs> Good to be here. Good to talk to you. Thanks for the introduction. No problem, no problem. Now, uh, I've got to say, I'm a big fan of The Simpsons and their mathematical secrets, but um, for people who might be surprised to learn just how mathematical The Simpsons writers are, can you just give us a quick rundown of The Simpsons writers and their amazing mathematical qualifications? Yeah, so, uh, well, the guy who pretty much runs the show today is a guy called Al Jean, and he was there when the very first series went out. And Al Jean was such a brilliant young mathematician that he went to Harvard to do maths when he was only 15. So he really was a bit, a bit of a child prodigy. Absolute maths with, with Al Jean. His writing partner is a guy called Mike Reese, who didn't study math at university, but, but was part of the math team at school and uh, used to correspond with a guy called Martin Gardner. If, if you've got people listening um, who are maybe uh, in their sort of 40s and 50s or older, they may well have read Martin Gardner books when they were a kid. And, and Mike Reese used to, as I say, correspond with him about questions to do with primes and so on. And then there are people like Ken Keeler, who has a PhD in maths from Harvard, in, a, uh, in applied maths from Harvard. Uh, Jay Stuart Burns was doing a PhD at Berkeley and packed it in to become a Simpsons writer. Uh, Jeff Westbrook was a professor at Yale, uh, not not in maths, but in computer science, but you know, very, very mathsy. Uh, and he left that to become a Simpsons writer. So these aren't just people who like maths. You know, that's great. Um, they're people that actually really achieved. I remember there's one story, there's another guy I mentioned called um, um, David X. Cohen. Uh, and he published a, a paper in a journal called uh, Discrete and Applied Maths. The way it works when you submit a paper to a journal is it takes quite a while. It can take six months or a year before it actually gets published. And so by the time it was published, he left um, academia and was working at The Simpsons. And he came in one day and said, hey, look, I've got this paper published in Discrete and Applied Maths. The next thing, Ken Keeler, another writer, says, oh, yeah, I had a paper pu published in that last month. So it is, it is mind-blowing. Now, I think the episode that we're talking about, Bart the Genius, I think it's, it's unashamedly highbrow from the word go. So, you, so it starts off with Lisa putting id in the Scrabble game. So do you think the writers well, were... Actually, actually, no, it starts off before that. <laughs> as far as I remember, the very first thing you see in that episode is Maggie playing with some building blocks. And the, oh, the, yes, of course. And the very and she she constructs e um, e m c s q u, which is e equals m c squared. Um, so you know, from the very get go, as you even from the very earliest possible moment, there's something nerdy there. And then, as you say, it goes to the Scrabble game and beyond. But yeah, yeah, and and then it just carries on from there. You know, and it's it's there's a lot of math in The Simpsons, um, but there's. You know, the, the writers put in other stuff, um, obscure movie references, reference to American politics from the 60s and 70s. Later in that episode, there's a kid who's got a lunchbox, and it's an Anatoly Karpov lunchbox. Now, <laughs> I, OK, now that that's so I, I played chess when I was a kid and I, I'm old enough to remember this guy called Anatoly Karpov, who was world chess champion. I think after Bobby Fischer uh, resigned the title or, or left chess. And so that's a, no, that's a 70s reference to a chess player. 
on a kid's lunchbox. So it goes on and on throughout the episode, throughout that particular series, you know, through every series ever since. The writer, now the main writer for this episode was John Vitti, and he went to Harvard. And it, and it seems like there's a there's a massive Harvard connection with a lot of the writers. They all wrote for the Harvard Lampoon. Yeah, the, the Harvard Lampoon is, uh, the way I think of it is, it's a bit like the Cambridge Footlights. If you're in Cambridge and you like performing comedy, or, you know, performing in sketch comedy perhaps then you go and join the, the cambridge footlights and there's a long long tradition of people from from emma thompson from, from the likes of emma thompson and stephen fry going all the way back to uh god david frost and others i guess who went through the footlights in, in harvard it's the harvard lampoon and the harvard lampoon is much less about performing and much more about writing it's, it's about humorous essays and they published a magazine i guess maybe every month or every quarter and um, so loads of, of comedians and, and comedy writers went through that Harvard Lampoon route mm. and, and many of them ended up working at The Simpsons. And certainly in The Simpsons, they're not shy of lampooning themselves because there's there's an episode which I think is the one where Grandpa Simpson ends up writing for Itchy and Scratchy. There's a character in there who's who's meant to, who's meant to be a, caric- a caricature of John Vitti. And he ends up singing Fair Harvard. There are quite a few of the writers who end up in scenes within the show over the years. When I was writing the book, I was, um, you know, I was thinking, well, how, how do I get photos of these writers? And OK, you know, you can get some some reasonably straightforward photos. I desperately wanted to use their images from The Simpsons because uh, I thought that would be the coolest way to represent the writers of The Simpsons would be in their Simpsons characters in, in the show. But unfortunately, uh, you know, copyright and, and so on. Fox were pretty generous. They, they said I could use, I think there are four images in the book that come from the actual Simpsons show, but they're very protective, protective of their material. So um, the, the Simpsons images that are in the book all directly relate to the mathematics that's in the show. Oh, and, and I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I've tweeted about this enough times. Probably should stop soon. Um, but I made a little cameo appearance in The Simpsons earlier this year. Oh, okay. uh, so um, yes, yes, uh, Lisa, well. Lisa and Bart uh, go to a science fair and I'm running um, uh, a, a little sh- a little stand uh, not the Master of the Simpsons but the Master of Itchy and Scratchy which uh, is presumably <laughs> the title of my next book maybe who knows going back to the episode do you think you need to know a bit about calculus to get the RDRR joke Yes. So it's a pretty difficult joke to get unless you know a bit of maths, um, unless you've done some calculus. So calculus is, is the mathematics of, of um, the rate of change of functions. And um, there's this thing called differentiation, whereby you can differentiate equation to, in order to get the kind of slope at any point along that curve. If you take uh, the equation, gosh, I'm trying to think what it was. It's y equals r cubed over three. Um, if you mm. apply differentiation to that, you end up with a, a conclusion which is dy equals r dr r, uh, which is r dr. Now this is this is painfully not funny at all. <laughs> you know, just you know, dissecting uh, was well, somebody once you know dissecting um, jokes is a bit like dissecting frogs. You know, the, the frog dies and nobody really enjoys it. It's some something like that. But but even better than that. So it's two really unfunny things I now said. So anyway, let's get on with it. Um, so, um, so yeah, unless you understand calculus, um, you don't understand the joke. But the way these things work in The Simpsons is that if you don't get it, it doesn't matter. The point of that little scene is that Bart is in this school for gifted children. 
the teacher's made an obscure joke. Everyone in the class gets it except Bart. And if you're a viewer and you don't get it, well, that's fine, too, because, you know, we're just ordinary people a bit like uh, a bit like Bart. Um, so you're not necessarily supposed to get the joke. And it's the same with a lot of the math jokes. They're there for a split second. They're there for a, a, a moment. They're just a passing reference. So if you don't even see it, it doesn't matter. If you don't understand it, it doesn't matter. Sometimes there are jokes in The Simpsons that refer to something like pie. Now, because we all know about pie and we've all studied pie at school, the pie references are much more uh, part of the story or part of the script. And um, and then it's not what we call a, a freeze frame gag. It's integral to the scene. But in this case, it's, it's a passing reference. And unless you know about calculus, then it won't mean that much, um, I'm afraid. There's actually an error in the maths. The, the material was sent off, I think, to, to South Korea for animation. And when it came back, I think that episode was pulled forward because they were having problems with another episode that would have been uh, episode number two in, in the series. And so this error in the, in the calculus slipped through. But as far as I can remember, there are no other maths errors in the entire, gosh, you know, 25, 26, 27 years of the show. That, that one seems to be the only one that slipped through because it was such an early episode, probably. Well, of course, there's loads and loads of examples of maths in various places in The Simpsons. I've got to say my absolute favourite one and reading the book, it really, really took me aback. I can't remember which episode it is, but Homer's got a blackboard and he's got lots of various scribbles on it. And one, yeah, one of the scribbles, it says something like 4,000 and something to the power 12 plus 4,000 something else to the power 12 equals 4,000 something else to the power 12. And I just went, that disproves Fermat's last theorem. Homer Simpson can't disprove Fermat's last theorem. Yes, that, that's the Wizard of Evergreen Terrace. And I think that was the very first episode when I noticed something really striking um, that was mathematical. And, and also physics, the top. So, so Homer wants to become an inventor. The Wizard of Menlo Park was the nickname for um, Thomas Edison. So the Wizard of Springfield uh, of Evergreen Terrace is, is, is Homer, who, who also wants to become an inventor in this episode. And he's writing all sorts of stuff on the blackboard. And again, it's only there for a moment. So unless you, you know, really look at it closely, you never notice it. But on the top line of that blackboard um, is a formula predicting the mass of the Higgs boson. Um, there's another <laughs> line there that relates to the density of the universe. Um, there's another line there that relates to topology um, and transforming a, a, a torus. And then there is this other line that you've mentioned here that relates to Fermat's last theorem. Uh, which defies Fermat's last theorem, in fact. And so um, having written a book about Fermat's last theorem and having done a, a PhD in particle physics, the whole board just looked out at me. And then I think I emailed, the first person I emailed was a guy called well, David X. Cohen, who we've just spoken about already. David X. Cohen was, was uh, one of the important writers on The Simpsons, but also kind of co-created the whole Futurama uh, show. And um, was its exec producer on that for, for season after season. And so I just dropped him an email and just said, look, you, you've got a writing credit on this Fermat's Last Theorem joke or this episode featuring the Fermat's Last Theorem joke. How did it get there? And then David explained to me that he'd done physics as a degree and then he'd done some computer science and he'd written maths papers and that there were a load of other people just like him who used to be mathematicians and they're comedy writers now, but they still love maths. And putting stuff in the show was their way of still expressing their, their love for maths. 
I think there's a whole other book for you there with the uh, the mathematical secrets of Futurama, which is crazy. Oh, full of no, them, if I remember no, right. no, yeah, the, the last three chapters of the book are all about Futurama. No, it, 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 no, oh, I've, been, I've been through that as well. In fact, when I was there, uh, I, I went over to meet the writers, and David was uh, editing one of the episodes. Now I'm trying to remember what it was. It was 2D blacktop or something. I, uh, gosh, it's gone there. But it was, you know, it was a privilege to see a program being put together and 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 edited uh, before it was even broadcast. I got to hear a script read through of, of one of the episodes of The Simpsons. It was a, uh, you know, it, it was a terrific book to to be to, to to write. Even though I say it myself, it's a great idea for a book because there are great books like the maths of no no the physics of Star Trek or the physics of Doctor Who, and that's not so surprising because those shows are science fiction you expect to have science in science fiction but to have maths in the simpsons or maths in futurama uh, and uh, particularly a lot of geometry in, in futurama that's such a surprise and so it was it was lovely to kind of go through it you know, episode by episode and, and pick out each example and, and explain it and and then also talk about the writers as well so uh, if uh, our listeners wanted to find said book, Simon, where could they find it? I'm assuming all good bookstores. <laughs> I'm assuming so. Uh, you know, Amazon will obviously have it. But there's, a, there's another place I like to buy books from now called Hive, where you can order things online and the prices are pretty heavily discounted, but they deliver it to you via your local independent bookshop. So, um, ah. yeah, obviously support your independent bookshop if you've got one and you can. If you want to order online and get it through your independent bookshop, then the I say the independent bookshop gets a bit of a cut as well. And that's Hive Stores, I think it's called. But it's the Hive Bookshop online. Well, Simon Singh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. Uh, thank, thanks for uh, giving me a call. Uh, well, thank you very much, Simon. Uh, thanks for being part of the show. And now, what we've all been waiting for, the storming of the Stasi HQ. That's right, that's right. So this is the story of how the ubiquitous and absolutely despised secret police of the former East Germany were stormed by the people they repressed for 40 years. But first, a little bit of background uh, about the East German secret police, what their mission was, how they came into existence, and most importantly, why they were despised so much. So as we've talked about in previous shows, the end of the Second World War saw Germany in ruins with control of it quartered up between the UK, USA, France and the Soviet Union. So the British, American and French sectors would go on to become West Germany and the Soviet sector eventually became what became known as East Germany or the German Democratic Republic, mm. the, the GDR. And in case you're wondering, oh, democratic, but they didn't have like elections or anything like that. So, so you have quite a few totalitarian dictatorships with democratic in their names. And... <laughs> What they mean by democratic is of the people. So the idea was that the GDR and the Soviet Union, they were socialists, so they were you know, workers and peasants states run by and for the people, so therefore democratic. The fact that people weren't voted in is neither here nor there. Ah, uh, different flavour of democracy. Exactly, exactly. So after the war, the Soviets ran the East for a bit, uh, but preparations began to hand over power to the local parties. So there were two socialist-slash-communist parties in East Germany. There was the Communist Party of Germany and the Social Democratic Party of Germany, and they absolutely hated each other. It was, it was pretty much the Judean People's Front versus the People's Front of Judea. <laughs> Splitter. Yeah, exactly, exactly. 
So under the command of Joseph Stalin, he basically went, right, you guys are running Germany now, so you merge. And they did. They became the Socialist Unity Party of Germany, otherwise known as the SED. So the GDR was a one-party state and no other parties were allowed. So the GDR officially came into existence on October 7th, 1949, with Walter Ulbricht as the first secretary. And this new state, they needed a security service to mirror what they had in the Soviet Union. In the Soviet Union, they had the KGB at the time. No, they didn't. They had the NKVD at the time. Ah, right. Which was like the forerunner to the KGB. Um, so in 1950, the Ministry for State Security, otherwise known as the Stasi, now I've been told on good authority that it's, that it's pronounced Stasi, but I am rubbish at my German pronunciation, so I'm just going to say Stasi. I think most most people would... Right. From, from this from this neck of the woods, so I don't. If we can just just kind of take it as red, yeah, sure, sure, then, then that should be fine. Yeah. So Stasi founded in 1950. From 1957, the Stasi was headed by one man who became synonymous with it, a guy called Eric Mielka, and he was a close ally of Eric Honecker. You know, Eric's United. Absolutely. Uh, he was a close ally of Eric Honecker, who took over as leader of the GDR in 1971. And there were absolutely loads of issues in the GDR. Uh, one of them was uh, industrial productivity. And one thing that really sums it up is cars. So in the West, they were making, you know, Volkswagens and BMWs, you know, your really fancy luxury cars that everyone wanted to buy. And in the East, they were making Trabants. Oh, now, do you say I do like a Trabant, but then I've never had to own or drive one. So a Trabant was essentially a lawnmower engine in a fiberglass shell. So if anything hit a Trabant, the Trabant would just disintegrate. I have had the... I don't know if you could call this good fortune, but I, but I have sat in two Trabants. One in the GDR Museum in Berlin, and the other time... There was one at a place called Memento Park in Hungary, which I might talk about more in a, in a future episode. Oh. And, and both of, both times, I felt like that really tall guy in the episode of Simpsons. <laughs> you know, the one with his legs sticking out the windows. I do not know how I would have driven in East Germany because, because they're absolutely tiny. So you have the car situation sort of summing up what industry was like and provision of consumer goods. And... One of the main problems that the GDR had was that a lot of people just didn't want to stay. So you had an exodus of people, you had a brain drain, just people going to the West. So they could close the main border between the two Germanys. But up until the Berlin Wall was built, it was possible to go into West Berlin from East Berlin because it was just, functionally, functionally it was just one city. There was just an... You know, in an invisible line that said this is east and this is west, but people could more or less come and go as they pleased until the Berlin Wall went up in 1961. When the wall went up, that cut off people's escapes. And trying to get out of the GDR, if, if you were a GDR citizen, trying to get out, trying to take flight, was a crime. And part of the remit of the Stasi was to not only stop people escaping, but to prevent escape attempts before they happened. So to this end, they wanted to know everything about people. They were extremely bureaucratic. They kept really extensive files. 
on their thousands of targets. And some files could run up to tens of thousands of pages, you know, just for one person. And they could contain incredibly minute and personal details. They'd say when you got up, what you were wearing on a given day, what you ate, when you went to bed, when you had sex, and, you know, the list goes on. And everything could be useful for them, you know, especially the sex thing. So say they were spying on Troy McClure <laughs> and they discovered his fish fetish, then, then they, could, they could blackmail him. They could say, hey, we know what you do with fish. Right, you tell us what your neighbour's up to, and then we won't tell... Well, not your wife, but we won't tell. <laughs> we won't tell whoever. We won't tell the fish what you're doing with the other fish. <laughs> so, so the Stasi had many, many roles, not just limited to East Germany. They were in in charge of international espionage, things like that, and their numbers like really, really swelled as the GDR went on. We'll talk about numbers in a minute, and they were known as the sword and shield of the party. One of their roles was to keep the party in power. So you've got two major roles there. Stop people leaving, keep the SED in power. So let's talk numbers, because the amount of people employed by the Stasi is just staggering. So all, over the course of its existence, the Stasi employed around 274,000 people. So the exact number is difficult to put a figure on, because they didn't just have full-time staff. They had tens and thousands of informants, and the roles of informants were wide-ranging. Someone could be almost a full-time informant, where they would you know, have a handler, and they'd regularly tell their handler information, and then you might have more casual informants. You might have someone who was blackmailed a couple of times. You might have someone who was just tapped on the shoulder and asked, hey, who lives here? Oh, uh, Mr. Fritz. Uh, thanks very much. You know, and that could have been a Stasi agent, so... Okay. You know, so... So a lot of zero-hours contracts, then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's, that's, that's one way to look at it. So one thing that set the Stasi apart from other secret services at the time was their methods. So secret services, certainly around Stalin's time, you could just drag someone out, someone out of bed, take them outside, and shoot them. You could be as brutal as you liked, really. When the 70s rolled on, East Germany had to sign up to something called the Helsinki Accords. And the flow of information was a lot more readily available. They had to compete with the West in terms of human rights. They didn't want the West to go, oh, you don't want to go to the East. No, they'll just shoot you. So they had to come up with uh, many more subtle ways of doing things. So, like I say, the Stasi knew... For just going around shooting people wasn't the done thing. So they came up with other methods. And I should say that I've seen some of the evidence of these methods firsthand because I've been to the Stasi Museum in Berlin. It's in the building of the former Stasi HQ. And just getting there is an odd experience because in terms of the rest of Berlin, it's pretty much in the middle of nowhere. The station that's next to it, during the time of the Stasi, you only got on and off at that station if you were working for the Stasi. So if you weren't, you'd see the same faces day in, day out, but you couldn't just say, oh, all right, Bob, how you doing? Nice weather today. Because if Bob got off at this station, then he knew he was a Stasi man. So it must, 
you know, you know, just your journey to and from work every day. It's, and it's like, we are now arriving at the Stasi station. Everyone keep quiet. So, yeah, it's probably the most chilling place I've been to after the House of Terror in Budapest. Before I went there, I had to visit the site of the Berlin Wall. You, ha you have to do that when you go to Berlin. Obviously, the wall isn't there anymore, apart from a few little bits, which just serve educational purposes, I suppose. But in the centre of Berlin, uh, where the Brandenburg Gate is, they've marked out where the wall used to be. And it's just so strange to think, OK, right, so now I'm in West Berlin. And if I just take a little walk over here, just cross the road, now I'm in East Berlin. And... Now I'll just walk over here, and now I'm back in West Berlin. And you, you know, to think that if I'd have tried that decades ago, I would have had like a massive wall to get over, and a death strip, and landmines, and people shooting at me. You know, j just to get to the other side. And I was so so tempted to go. And now I'm in the west, and now I'm in the east, <laughs> west, east, west, east. But yeah, I, I I I managed to avoid that temptation. Following the example of Homer Simpson in uh, Bart versus Australia, of course. Yes. Jumping to and from American sovereign soil from Australian. So when you get into the Stasi Museum, you're greeted with the site of a Stasi truck that was used to transport prisoners. And what they used to do was take a very boring, very ordinary looking truck, like a butcher's van or something like that, maybe disguise it, but usually keep it just plain. And if they wanted to pick you up, they'd drive up to you in the truck they just quickly bungle you in the back and they'd put you in a really, really narrow compartment with no windows. So it was so narrow that you couldn't sit down at all. So you had to stand up the whole journey and you couldn't see anything. They'd then drive around for a couple of hours and all they'd do is just drive in circles around Berlin. But because you can't see where you're going and you can't see anything at all, then you, comp then you completely lose all track of time. And all the time you're asking yourself questions like, why have I been picked up? What's going on? Where are they taking me? You're in the truck for so long that you you might be being taken to some secret Stasi HQ out in the middle of the country. You might be being taken to Moscow, for all you know. And they applied lots and lots of really horrible tricks like that. So say, say you and me were living in East Germany in the 70s and we decide to escape. We go somewhere, it probably wouldn't be either of our flats because you know, flats were bugged and everyone's informing on each other. So say we go to the back of a random bar. We agree that, okay, what we'll do, we'll disguise ourselves and we'll hire a car. And we make those plans and then just go about our business for a day or two. And then, so I'm bungled into the back of one of these vans and I end up in a Stasi prison. Say I'm then taken from my prison cell, I'm frog-marched from a prison cell down the hall into an interrogation room. And while I'm being frog-marched, I see you coming the other way. So immediately, that tells us things, because we can see each other. So I know that you haven't betrayed me, because you've been picked up as well, and we might have worked out some secret signals, something like that. So us seeing each other would give us information. And, yeah. and, the, and the Stasi knew about that. So what they did in their prisons, like uh, uh, Hochenhausen, is they would have little traffic light systems. So that only one prisoner was in the room at the time. So at no point did prisoners see each other. You know, they were really, really devious like that, really horrible. So they excelled at what they called 
and I'm going to try and pronounce a German word here. Oh, here we go. Yeah, they sell at what they call Zersetzen. Yeah, yeah, that sounds legit. Zersetzen. Now, if you've studied chemistry at all, you might recognise that word, because it roughly translates as biodegradation or decomposition. So the idea was to psychologically damage their targets rather than physically damage them. What they do is little things. They'd break into people's houses and maybe move an ornament from one side of the mantelpiece to the other. If your alarm clock was set to go off at 7, they might change it to go off at 7.30. And they could, they could you know, convince people that they were losing their minds. And, and some people even ended up you know, committing suicide because of this. Do you know what? You've suddenly made something make a lot more sense for me. Um, I'm a big fan of the comedian Alexis Sale, who obviously um, incorporates a lot of... Uh, well, not obviously, if you haven't heard of him. Um, he does a lot of uh, communist shtick because he was raised as a, as a communist in Liverpool. Mm. Um, and he often talks about sort of uh, Eastern European secret police doing absurd things like hiding people's slippers or fertilising their goldfish and that kind of thing. Mm. But that's exactly what they would have done then. It in, is. in an attempt to, to drive people up the wall. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, okay, absolutely. Okay. That's what they did. So, so they employed every trick in the book to try and get people to cooperate with them. They could make vague threats. So there's a film called The Lives of Others, which tells the story of a Stasi case. And there's a scene where a woman, she accidentally comes across some Stasi activity. And one of the officers says something along the lines of, hey, you didn't see anything. Oh, by the way, congratulations on your daughter getting into university. Oh, it'd be a shame if she was to lose her place. Even if they couldn't do anything about things like that, they gave the impression that they could. So it's a bit, it was a bit, we know where you live. Yeah. Only it was much more sinister. It wasn't just, we know where you live. We know what you do for a job. We know when you get up. We know what breakfast cereal you have. Yeah, everything like that. My God, it, it's just, it's impossible to conceive. And th this shows, I guess, the level of privilege uh, that kind of, uh, I, I certainly enjoy, and I assume you as well, to a, to a certain extent, mm -hmm. uh, as sort of, um, as people in a, a country with our flavour of democracy, sort of, you know, it's just really difficult to think what that even would have been like. And mm. that this was happening in the, well, the very, very early 90s, the very dawning of that decade. Uh, yes, yes. Well, yeah. Well, yes and no. Um, we'll, we'll we'll get on to exactly when the Stasi finished. The existence of the Stasi brought some really quite unexpected benefits because they had a way of providing the cash-strapped GDR with some much-needed hard currency. Because what they used to do was sell political prisoners to the West mm. for money, and they made equivalent of of a billion pounds by doing this. Wow, and in many ways, it, it it really helped. It really helped to prop up the government. So to recap, two of the main roles of the Stasi were as follows: keep the SED in power and stop people leaving. So 1989 saw huge changes in the Eastern Bloc. So Gorbachev's perestroika was in full swing, and the tide was very much turning against the GDR government. So following mass protests, the government allowed free movement of GDR citizens. And the Berlin Wall came down on November the 9th. Now, the story of how the Berlin Wall came down is absolutely fascinating, and I'm not going to go into it here. But just, but just two days before the Berlin Wall came down, Eric Mielke, he knew what was going on, and he 
resigned as head of the Stasi. On December the 21st, the constitution of East Germany was changed, removing the provision that the SED was the only party allowed to be in power. So very quickly, the two main functions of the Stasi, you know, stopping people leaving, keeping the SED in power, were obsolete. The Stasi themselves were renamed and subsequently disbanded. Oh, so they tried rebranding before disbanding them. Yeah, they had a new name, which was something like just the Ministry of Security or something like that. Oh, that sounds a lot less threatening. Yeah, yeah. But but people just went, no, 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 we don't want that. Just just get rid of them. So following this, the Stasi knew that the writing was on the wall and the employees attempted to destroy as many documents as possible, knowing that they they were implicated in many crimes. And when word of this got out, protesters started to gather outside in their thousands. And they eventually overpowered the security and gained access to the Stasi headquarters on January 15th, 1990, just one day after Bart the Genius was first aired. And among the protesters were former Stasi informants looking to destroy files related to them. So even that final protest was infiltrated by by Stasi members. I mean, I've, I've got to say, that was actually really resourceful. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's amazing. When the protesters eventually got in, they must have found a pretty bizarre scene. So the Stasi had tried frantically to destroy their files in several ways. They started with mechanical shredders. Like pretty much everything else in the GDR, shredders were in short supply, and the ones they did have weren't very good. Trabant shredders. Exactly. And they even sent their spies out to West Berlin to try and get more. And the protesters found over a hundred burnt-out shredders in the building. I, I'm sorry. I, I know this is a major historical event with, with great gravitas and all that, that kind of thing, but just, just the idea of spies desperately searching for office equipment is, yeah. is just... It, it's surreal. <laughs> it is. It is, yeah. But what was even weirder was, as the Stasi went along, they just went along the shelves, right grab that file, stick it in a shredder, stick what's shredded in a bag. Right, stick that bag over there. Right, next file, shred in a bag. Shred, bag. So all the bags were all lined up in, ter- in terms of the order of what was shredded. So they were even being like really, really bureaucratic and really organised as they were destroying things. It's incredible. So following uni- unification, the government needed to decide what to do with the files. They made the decision to try and recover the files that had been shredded. As you can imagine, that's an absolutely mammoth task that still continues to this day. And there's estimated to be between 400 and 600 million document fragments. Good Lord. So, you know, you know, they're trying to automate it, you know, scan them all, get a computer program to work out what goes where. To start off with, it was all done by hand. So the Stasi files are now handled by a... German federal agency. It's got a very long name, so I'm not going to try and pronounce it. (laughs) And anyone can request access to their files. Now, some files are just accessed out of morbid curiosity. Because if you were in GDR and you were there for very mundane reasons, like if you were, say, a Western tourist and you just wanted to pop there for a weekend or whatever, you would have been spied on almost certainly, because pretty much everyone who came in from the West was monitored. And some people's Stasi records are very boring. It's just, this guy got up, he had a bowl of cornflakes, he went out to the station, he got a tr- he got on a train, he went somewhere, 
but it's almost like having someone writing a diary for you. And it's sort of, you get a record of someone else's observations about you. And, 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 and people go, oh yeah, I was wearing a red jumper on January the 16th, 1987. <laughs> <laughs> so some people access their files out of morbid curiosity, but others are, you know, really, really dark and really, really harrowing. Like that example I gave earlier saying, if you and I attempted, attempted an escape people would learn that, say, they were betrayed by their friends. Mm. Some people were even betrayed by own family members. You know, and it, and it still goes on today, and it's just trying to bring justice and closure to people, which is, which is, which is why the Stasi files, opening them up, was really, really important, and it's, it is still important. Yeah. So, what about the leaders of the GDR? A bunch of them, including Eric Honecker and Eric Mielka, sought refuge in the Chilean embassy in Moscow. So Honecker was charged with ordering the construction of the Berlin Wall and the subsequent orders to shoot people who tried to cross it. And although his trial started, it was discontinued on health grounds and he was allowed to go to Chile to be with his family and he died of liver cancer in 1994. The case of Eric Mielke, though, had an almost Al Capone-esque quality to it. Given that Eric Mielke ran the Stasi from 1957 to 1989 you know, committing various atrocious, horrible crimes. When do you think the major crime he was convicted of happened? I'm going to say after the breakup of the Stasi. After the breakup of the Stasi. So what year? 1990. 1990. Well, you're not far off. It was 1931. Ah! <laughs> I went the wrong way with that controversial guess. Yes, yes. Um, and this is a whole story of itself, but... So he and an accomplice, they were members of the Communist Party back in Berlin, and they were very, very unhappy with the police, and they murdered a couple of police captains. They killed Paul Anlauf and Franz Leck. Oh, I, th I thought you were going to say some minor civil disobedience. No, no, no. It's, no, it's no. straight-up murder. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very serious crime. Uh, they also tried to kill someone else, but they survived, and, and knowing that there was a witness... They were told, right, get out of there. And they ended up in Moscow. So Eric Mielke was sentenced to six years in prison in 1993. And he eventually died in the year 2000, aged 92. Mm. So it took until the year 2000. But I think that finally brought some closure to the whole Stasi case, shall we say. Ah, okay. Well, fascinating as always, Tom. Um, excellent. So that was Bart the Genius... Backed with the uh, <laughs> the storming of the Stasi HQ. Mm -hmm. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can uh, get in touch with us by email at uh, podcast at retrospecticus.org or you can tweet at us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore. Mm -hmm. We always do. <laughs> um, if you, for some reason, would like to uh, read some stuff that I've done... Because I keep forgetting to plug this, you can go to atomicsourpuss.blogspot.co.uk, which is way too long, I need to get a shorter version of that, uh, where at the moment, as we record this, you can read about my top 30 episodes of The Simpsons ever in a 37-part series, but by the time this is out, probably not, so drop by there for other things I like, such as Formula One and David Bowie and there's probably some weasels on there or something like that. <laughs> Excellent. And thanks again to Simon Singh. Go out there and buy his books. 
and check out the great work that the Good Thinking Society do. Excellent. I'm Gareth Irons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons history podcast. You're listening to episode two, Bart, the storming of the Stasi headquarters. <coughs> that, that sounds more ridiculous every time I say it. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it, it's a great idea. It just It's a shame it came apart on episode two. <laughs> and the thing is, I'm trying to say it. So I'm trying to say it with a straight face. That just makes it funnier. Uh, oh, it's ridiculous.